today we bring our study of Joel to a close. So I want to encourage you to turn in your copy of God's Word with me to Joel chapter 3 as we look at this chapter in its entirety, all 21 verses. Joel chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunken it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried my rich treasures into your temple. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away. For the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers never shall again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Sittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, in Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, 
for the Lord dwells in Zion. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this book. We confess it is challenging, but it's also encouraging. Help us to have a right estimation of you. Help us to live holy lives in anticipation of you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so today we are concluding our brief, somewhat brief study of this book. Uh, I think this is the fifth sermon in this series, fifth or sixth sermon in this series. And we've seen from the beginning how this prophet is, is capitalizing on a recent locust swarm. It devastated the countryside economically, culturally, religiously by cutting off access to the supplies needed for sacrifice. It was devastating. And, and the prophet understands that that is a picture, a type, a foreshadowing of God's wrath poured out in, a, in an even greater fashion because he understands, per the biblical worldview, that all suffering in this world is in some, some way, shape, or form an expression of wrath against sin. And so, he sees in this the foretaste of an even greater judgment, which he talks about in chapter 2, and the proper response of people of the people of God is to repent, to maintain a posture of repentance and humility, because the Lord judges his house first. He will consume the chaff. He will melt the dross. The Lord will purify his people. And here's where we can sometimes get discouraged. Because in our contemporary understandings of God, we so emphasize the nice stuff that we forget that he is a consuming fire. He is holy. He is exalted. He is, in a nutshell, not to be trifled with. And yet, we learn from both Scripture and human history that the nations rage against the Lord and His Anointed One. They seek in every way to shake off His shackles, as they think in their hearts. And so... Humankind in its unrighteousness suppresses active resistance to the word and will of God. But yet, we sometimes see ourselves as being on the short end of the stick. Because judgment begins at the household of God. And so we see bad stuff happen to us. And we are tempted to become discouraged or disillusioned or disappointed. And the world, for its part, oftentimes is prone to gloating, to reveling in our misfortune. Now, I want to begin this message by looking at the last verse, 21. 
I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Okay, judgment begins at the household of God, but it does not stop there. But in the interim period, you have the word of the Lord telling us two things right here in this verse. One, there's blood that is that is shorthand for all the wrongings up to and including the actual shedding of blood. There is blood that he has not yet avenged. Not yet. So what that means is that in this age, there is injustice. And there is no satisfactory getting of justice in all cases. Sometimes we have to sit with apparent injustice. And that's no fun. When you are mocked, when you are scorned, when you are ridiculed, when you are, when you are marginalized, when you are exploited, when someone assaults or attacks you, there's not always justice in this life. Though we are the image of God and our hearts scream for justice, sometimes it doesn't seem to come. A few years ago, ISIS took a bunch of Coptic Christians out onto the shore and sawed their heads off. Not sure how many of those ISIS guys ever were there. Maybe it's because they're running around. I don't know. Stuff happens, and it's horrific. And we're tempted to think that because there's no justice now, there's no justice at all. We can be like the soul's of those martyred in Revelation 6 under the altar is the souls of those who have shed their blood for their witness and their testimony. And what is it they're crying out? Lord, send them a, a, an evangelist. Oh, Lord, have mercy on them. Send them to the gospel. No, what are the souls of those slain under the altar saying? How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? How long? And what are they told? Your forgiven sacrifice, the white robe, a token of their acceptability to God. And then they're told, That leads us to the second truth in this verse 21. I will avenge their blood. Justice delayed is not justice denied. The Christian faith is unique in many respects. But here is something that you have to keep in mind. It's not over when your body dies. Okay, your soul lives forever. And the great eschatological truth that the Christian faith 
brings to the world that no other faith has. Every faith believes in an afterlife. Every, every little folk religion has a, has a heaven of sorts. But the Christian faith is unique because it says there's going to be a bodily resurrection from the dead and your soul will rejoin your body. And the Lord will judge the living and the dead. And every wrongdoing that has been inflicted on the people of God will be visited back in spades upon his enemies and ours. This age, the age in which we live, is the age of mercy and forgiveness. We are called, brothers and sisters, to turn the other cheek when insulted. We are called to bless and not curse. We are called to love our enemies. We are called to this because this is the age of forgiveness in which Christ's blood has been poured out that all of God's enemies might become his friends. But that window closes and the day comes when there is no mercy for the enemies of God. There's no more conversion. There's only wrath, and there's only judgment. And and that's the day that is described here in this chapter. So this chapter speaks fundamentally of the day of the Lord, that coming, ominous, great day where the Lord acts in history. It's a day that is like a coin with two sides. On the one hand or on the one side, it is a day of retribution. And on the other side, and at the same time, it's a day of restoration. And you see that nuanced, double-sided feature in verses 1 and 2. Where in those days, at that time, while I'm restoring the fortunes of Israel, my people, boom, I'm going to do this to the nations. It is a day of retribution. I will avenge their blood. It says that all the nations will be gathered here at this valley of Jehoshaphat. And man, I'm telling you, a lot of ink has been spilt about this. What is that? A lot of uh, scholars, particularly of a, partic- of a certain tradition, have tried to identify which valley that is. Well, truth be told, we're not even sure that it's a proper name because the word Jehoshaphat simply means God judges. So it simply could be the valley of God's judgment. You see, military campaigns and battles were fought, and typically are fought, in open places. And a valley between two mountains is an ideal place for that. And so, all the nations are being gathered by the Lord. And they are judged for their crimes against God's people. You may be tempted to think that's an Old Testament truth only. It's not. We see it in the New Testament in multiple places. We already referenced Revelation 6, where the souls of those who were slain cry out for vengeance. In Revelation 16, the angel pours out his bowl on the rivers and on all the waters, and everything turns to blood. And in verse 6, the angel says this, Thus are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. 
Therefore, you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Last week, we talked about how God will never abandon you, that he has in Christ wed himself to you. So you have to understand, I want to change the way you think of God judging the world. When we think of God judging the world, we oftentimes think of a human courtroom in which the judge sits there and presides. Basically, uh, objective, dispassionate, no personal vested interest in the affairs. He's just there to make sure the law is followed. And there's outrage whenever a judge does preside over a case where there's perceived personal interest involved. They're supposed to recuse themselves. That is not the way the Bible depicts God's judgment. He is personally offended by human sin. He is personally outraged by the sins committed against his people in particular. God does not say, oh, my people didn't act quite nice, and so you did something to them. My, my people kind of had it tough. That is not the way God sees it. God defends his people as a man defends his wife. I don't care what my people did. You did this to my people. God is passionately pro-you. And he will passionately defend you. You are for him. And so he renumerates, enumerates the sins committed against you as sins committed against him, which is exactly what he does to you. He's outraged. He's personally involved. He's personally vested. He is personally offended by what has happened to you. So your suffering, your hurt, your sorrows, the wrongings that have been done to you, the injustices that have happened, are not lost. The Lamb is storing up wrath for the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And the Lord brings them together. In verse 9, we see it. The, the Lord doesn't just happen to respond to the humans doing stuff. He summons the nations together. In verse 9, he tells the nations, consecrate yourselves for war. Just like in chapter 2, he told the people to consecrate themselves in repentance, he's now saying to the nations, consecrate yourselves for war. To consecrate oneself means to devote oneself entirely. Set oneself apart. Quit everything else you are doing and focus on this one thing. So complete is the, is the war effort to get themselves ready that they take their agricultural instru instruments and turn them into weapons of war. It's an all-hands-on-deck type of activity where even the weak people who would not normally be involved get involved. And thus we see a situation where the nations collectively, are at the peak of their rebellion, are at the peak of their resistance, are at the peak of their power. 
and they think they're coming to have a contract. And the Lord says, what are you doing? You, they think they're coming to finally be free, to finally rebel and overthrow the great king. When in actuality, they're coming to the land of Canaan. And so in verse 16, I'm sorry, verse, verse 14 the prophet uses the metaphor of a, of a sickle being sent to reap the earth and tread the winepress. That image, that metaphor is throughout Scripture. And it depicts here the Lord cutting them down in judgment. And then our Lord takes the same metaphor and like turns it up to max in Revelation 14 where the Lord tells the angel to reap the earth and he's ready for the harvest and so they're cast into the winepress of the fury of God's wrath and it says the floods flow so 1600 stadia which is about 150 miles as high and as deep as of course is Bryce persecution of God's people. It's personal. The Lord takes it personal. And it's not just, oh, shame on you, world, bad world. This is the same fate which we deserve if it were not for the blood of Jesus applied to us. And it's the reality of this horrific future that should compel us to say, repent now while you can. For today is the day of salvation. Flee from the coming destruction. Flee. For it is certain and it is sure. And there is no hope. There is no hope of escape. If you come before the Lord in his wrath, there is no hope. So now, now is the day. Turn to our Lord. And that's what we see in verse 16, which is the turning point of this chapter, which this is where the coin flips. And you see that the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. It is terrifying and terrible. And the consequences of being caught in his wrath are truly astonishing. But the Lord is a refuge to his people a stronghold to the people of Israel. And then for the rest of the chapter, he outlines in three distinct ways what restoration looks like. That even as the Lord comes to judge human wickedness and put an end to it, even as he does that, he is giving his people every promise that he has made. He's fulfilling his vow. And he's blessing his beloved bride. And so three things that these last several verses tell us. First, restoration means purity. We will be holy. We will be holy. Sin will not be a contaminating influence anymore. When it says the nations will no longer, or strangers will no longer walk through our land, understand that there's, Scripture uses that two ways. First is the threat, 
of foreign invasion, but the second is the corrupting influence of the world around. We will be pure. Our fight with sin, our being subject to the consequences of our own sin and other people's sin directed towards us, will be done. We will be pure. Second, there will be prosperity. The false and the great wickedness of the prosperity gospel is saying and telling people that prosperity comes now. It does not. Now is the day where we've been called to suffer like Christ. But the day is coming when there will be prosperity, when his people will be given every good thing, all the treasures of heaven and and even the most barren, desolate, unusable pieces of real estate on this planet will be like a lush garden. There will be prosperity. No more struggling to make ends meet. What a glorious day that will be. No more wondering where you'll have the money to do this or that. Purity and prosperity will be for the people of God on that day. And third, and most importantly, his presence. And this gets back to the heart of it all. God will be with his people. And Joel mentions it. But that's picked up by John in his apocalypse in chapter 21 where God dwells with his people. There's not even a temple anymore. And that gets back to God finally having completely rectified the problem we're introduced to in Genesis 3 where God's fellowship with man was broken. The day comes when fellowship is fully restored and we get to see God as he is face to face. That's amazing. And so every tear is wiped away. Every heartache, every sorrow is gone. I'm willing to countless there may be tears of joy. I don't think you're supposed to wipe away every tear that you're not allowed to cry for joy because that's really tears of sorrow and sadness. But you may cry for it with joy. All of the bad stuff gone, and you will get the reward. So the day of the Lord, ultimately, brothers, is a day of retribution and restoration. This book orients us, and it reminds us that our posture in life should be one of repentance. In the face of hardship and suffering, we should have hope that God will make it right. And it should fill us in this gospel age with a sense of urgency to tell people and to appeal to them to flee the wrath to come and offer to them the hope of life everlasting even as we have been given that hope. So brothers and sisters, you are dear to the Lord. This life of trouble, the Lord is refining you, but the day comes when the crooked master of the world leaves all evil to the side and the only good 